Let me ask you one question. What is the worst sin? What is the worst sin? Right now, our culture is a mess. And wokeism is something that is continually on, uh, in the news media and in our conversations. Part and parcel of that discussion of uh, what is, what is um, important in our culture has to do with sexual expression and gender identity. Now, there are a number, maybe in an increasing number, that would put their finger on some of those things as being the worst sins. Gay and lesbian and trans choices, attitudes. Is that the greatest sin? Are sexual sins the greatest sins? Well, let's explore that for just a moment. I invite you to turn with me to uh, the book of Exodus. I'll let you find that. Exodus chapter 16 is where we're going to be. Um, but let me, let me take your mind back to Genesis 19. 4,000 years ago, Abraham and his nephew Lot walked planet Earth. The flocks of these two men were too large. They couldn't cohabitate in the same place. And so Abraham said to his nephew, you you, you choose where you want to go and I'm going to go someplace different. Lot chose to go to Sodom because he liked what he saw there. Now Sodom was infamous for what Um, what was presented there. And their homosexuality was evident to all. We get the word um, sodomy, referring to gay sex, uh, from the name of that particular town. God judged them and obliterated Sodom. In in Exodus 16, the prophet Ezekiel, 1,500 years after the destruction of Sodom, gives us an understanding of why that particular city was obliterated. Exodus, I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 16, find verse 46. End of that verse. Your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom and her daughters. You have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. Let me put a pause in my reading of the text and explain that the prophet Ezekiel, preaching after the exile, God's people have been removed from the land, 
and Ezekiel is speaking to the Israelites, comparing their attitudes and their behavior with that of Sodom, calling Sodom their sister, and he says, your attitudes and your behavior are worse. You've acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. Verse 48. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters, have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Oh, this is what we need. This is what we're looking for. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the needy. Don't miss this. This is why God punished Sodom. And you'll find here no reference to sexual sins. What does he say? This is why Sodom was destroyed. Arrogance, abundant food and careless ease, not helping the poor and needy. Okay, the visible, obvious sin of Sodom was the latter. They did not help the poor. They did not care for the needy. In other words, they were self-absorbed. Now he describes the circumstance in which the people of Sodom lived, namely, with these words, they had abundant food and careless ease. In other words, they had everything that they needed physically. They didn't need to labor and strive and scrimp and save in order to make ends meet. They weren't working three jobs. No, they had abundant food. They had everything they wanted. And a little bit more. Which resulted in careless ease. Namely, they were undisciplined with their time and they chased after entertainment. If this was written in our culture, I would, I would say that the bulk of Americans have abundant food. We have an abundance of what we need. And we certainly live with careless ease. It's manifested in, its, in, our, in our pursuit of sports, social media, computer games. Now there's one thing that we haven't talked about, and that is the mother of all sins. It is at the heart, the root of all sin, namely, arrogance, haughtiness, pride.
Listen, listen to what Scripture says about pride. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 opens. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. What's the first one on the list? Haughty eyes. Pride. Proverbs 8. Pride and arrogance and the evil way I hate, says the Lord. James 4. God is opposed to the proud. Proverbs 16. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Isaiah 2. For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. You have heard of the seven deadly sins. In the fourth century AD, a monk was, an ascetic monk, was concerned uh, for his, his fellow monks in their monkness. And he was concerned about their thought life and the ability for them to, to deal with the sin that invaded their thinking. And so he came up with a list of eight. Eight evil thoughts, as he phrased it. Christians through the centuries played with that, morphed it, and it turned into the seven deadly sins. According to Roman Catholic theology, these seven sins are mortal sins. And in Rome's understanding, a mortal sin is a sin that kills grace. So for a person who has committed this particular sin, they have killed grace and consequently lost their salvation. And they have to start all over again through repentance and penance, confession of their sin, in order to restore them to a place of salvation. Greed, envy, anger, lust, gluttony, sloth. But that which leads all of them, the chief, the mother of sins, is pride. I labor this point because of our text this morning. We find in our text a man by the name of Judas. There were two men named Judas in Jesus' disciples. And this one is, is, is called the, the, the man from, uh, from, from Kerioth. We call him Judas Iscariot. This particular Judas was guilty of betraying our Lord and Savior, our Master. A gross, heinous, disgusting, unexcusable, we might think, 
sin? Was it a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad sin? Absolutely. It was horrible and despicable in every way. Was that the worst sin? No, the worst sin was present and it manifested itself in all kinds of ways. Pride is being overly concerned with self. Pride is the excess of self-importance, self-exaltation. Thinking that my ways, my thinking, my perspective, uh, my expectations are better. Better even than God's. Such was the fault of Judas. Such is the fault of you and me. In his popular book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. What we see in Judas... see in ourselves. Turn with me to John chapter 13. We're in the middle of this chapter. Verse 21 is where we'll begin reading this morning. Jesus has um, been enjoying his last supper with his men. We find ourselves, beginning of verse 21, at the beginning, or I'm sorry, at the, in the middle of this Passover feast. Follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard 95 update. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a, at a loss to know which one he was speaking of. There was reclining one, Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who he is, who it is of, of, of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Jesus, Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have need for, uh, need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. 
So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Three parties in this section, the conniving one, the Christ, and the clueless ones. Now you have to, have to um, put something out of your mind and put something in your mind that's more accurate. When we think of the Lord's Supper, you may very well imagine in your mind the painting made famous by Leonardo da Vinci. The Last Supper, where, where his, uh, Jesus and his men are, 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 are seated, at, seated at normal tables on a, on a, on a long rectangular uh, uh, table. That incorrect understanding of what this setting was like needs to be expunged from your mouth, uh, your mind. So, so let me suck it out of your mouth right, suck it out of your mind right now. It's gone. Let's place it, place in it what needs to be there. They were seated at a triclinium, made popular by the Greeks and the Romans, for important feasts like this. You sat at a U-shaped table. In the middle is where a servant would be to, to serve food. You, you laid down on your left elbow with your head toward the center of the U, your feet behind you. The host would be in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the longer middle table, The place of honor would be to the left of the host. The second place of honor would be to the right of the host. You would be uh, very, very close to the ground at this particular table. This is a setting in which Jesus celebrated the Passover feast with his men. Beginning in verse 12. When Jesus had washed his feet, took his garment, he reclined at table again and talked with his disciples. Having begun the meal and engaged in conversation with them, he was, was, was talking about uh, their, their need for, uh, for, for, for cleansing, to follow his example, Um, he also revealed to them that he would be betrayed. In verse 21 of our text opens, after Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said. Let me pause there before we get to the actual words Jesus used. I I want you to notice that uh, grammatically, you, you don't have to say that Jesus testified and said. Two verbs that are piled on top of each other. You don't have to have anything piled on top of each other. You you just need to have one or the other. Jesus said. Jesus testified. uh, Either one works. Um, But that wasn't John's purpose. He intentionally piled the verbs on top of each other. Because he wanted to communicate the truth that Jesus is here revealing a secret and testifying that the secret is indeed true. 
Jesus is troubled in spirit. They could see visually all is not right. There is something going on inside his head. What is it? And Jesus said, truly, truly. Now before we continue, you, 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 will, you, you will note if you read the, read the immediate context, three times in six verses, Jesus uses this formula, verily, verily, amen, amen, truly, truly. It's, it's Jesus' way of saying, guys, take note, this is very important. I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, this is not the first time Jesus said this. Go back to chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus told his men, did I, not, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? They've had a clue that there was something awry, something didn't fit here. Not only has Jesus talked about his death, but now he's talking about one from among his inner twelve. One of them is going to be his betrayer. They can't believe this. It, 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 makes, it makes no sense to them. They knew that Jesus was Messiah. What was, Jesus, what was Peter's confession? Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed him, yes, you're right, Peter, I am. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. He would reign as the King. They also knew that Jesus righted wrongs all the time. Whether it was sickness, whether it was hunger, um, whether it was somebody that, that needed encouragement, Maybe somebody had a, a son, a daughter, a, a spouse that died. Jesus fixed all of that. He rose people from, raised people from the dead. So they're thinking, Jesus is the Messiah. He has righted wrongs in the past. He's simply going to do it again. Verse 22, the, um, the disparity, the, the, it, this doesn't fit kind of thinking so overwhelmed them that, they, that they, uh, they, they were wondering if they themselves were the problem. Verse 22, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking of. So their eyes darted around the table Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they're wondering, who is it? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, Matthew uh, um, says that the, the, uh, the, the, the disciples asked the Lord, 
surely it is not I, question mark. They looked around the table. They, they saw the faces of men that they had known and lived with and traveled with for three years. They knew each other, or so they thought. And they came to the conclusion, well, I know it's not him. I know it's, it can't be him. Lord, is, is, is it me? Ever the gamesman. Ever the thespian. Ever the one who, who longs to be on the stage. Even Judas. Ask the question, surely it is not I, Rabbi. Nobody suspected it was Judas. There was confusion among the disciples. Point number two, clarification. Verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And when these, we started this series of sermons, um, some 60 sermons ago, um, I spent some time articulating why we know that the Apostle John is the author of this particular gospel record. And we used this particular verse as part of that explanation. You can go back to the first message in this series if you're curious to know the step-by-step so we we, we understand how it is that it's the Apostle John that we're talking about when we speak of authorship. Suffice it to say that John, the uh, Apostle, he was one of the three in Jesus' inner circle among the twelve. Peter, James, and John were the ones that were with Jesus at the Transfiguration. It's this Apostle John. And he never refers to himself in his gospel record. He refers to himself in a self-deprecating way as, as the one whom Jesus loved. And Jesus did indeed love him deeply. John was seated to Jesus' right. He was in the second place of honor at the table. Now, as he was there, imagine Jesus here on, leaning on his left elbow. You, you ate with your right hand, drank with your, your right hand. John's right next to him. So at this point, Simon Peter, verse 23, I'm 24, I'm sorry. Simon Peter gestured to John and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Jesus has said, but hasn't identified that there is a betrayer among them. One of the twelve. Peter, probably at the end of one of the, uh, one of the arms of the triclinium table, catches John's eye. Maybe he uses sign language. Maybe he just mouths his concern. Maybe there's so much other chatter going on that he just speaks to John directly 
because of John's position at the table, Peter asks John, find out who it is. We're dying to know. There, there, there is rot in this table. We can't have that. Simon Peter says, find out who it is. So he, verse 25, that is John, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to the Lord, who is it? Okay, so here, here's John. All he does is lean back. His head is now on Jesus' chest. And he says probably in very soft tones, so as not to tip his hand that he's about to find out, or certainly wants to find out, who the rat is. John says, who is it? Jesus answers, verse 26. The one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. Jesus takes some bread from the table and he dips it in the Passover sauce. Bitter herbs mixed with some salt, uh, some, some, uh, some fruit. He, ha- he, he dips it in the, in, in the sauce and, and he hands it to Judas who probably, according to scholars, was seated at the place of honor to the left of the host. I wonder if Jesus and Judas's eyes met. Did Judas see the tremendous love of Christ in Jesus' eyes? Did Judas see the severe warning on Jesus' face? When he dipped the morsel, he took it gave it to Judas, son of Simon, from Icariot. Second page of your notes. Point number three, the command. Verse 27, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him, into Judas. Now that's a curious statement. What did John mean when he said Satan entered into Judas? Well, interesting, this is the second time we find Satan entering into, whatever that means, entering into Judas. Luke is the one, chapter 22, that tells us when Judas was negotiating with the religious leaders to betray Jesus to him, that is, hand him over to them, Luke says that at that point, Satan entered into Judas. Same language. Does that mean that at that point, 
Judas was possessed of the, the evil one? Or would we rather uh, be better to uh, understand that he was indwelt by Satan? Or controlled by Satan? Or influenced by Satan? We don't know. It might mean all of the above. Certainly, there was a tremendous influence that the evil one had on the man from Kiriath. His was a dark and a black soul, heavily influenced, if not possessed and controlled by Satan, such that his choices were guided and driven in that darkness by none other than the evil one himself. We know this, even though we might not understand the fullness of what it means, because the Holy Spirit revealed it both to to John and to Luke. Both of them record that Satan entered into Judas. Therefore, text tells us, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, in no way did Jesus force or or coerce Judas to do anything against his will. He wanted to do exactly what he did. He was certainly influenced, maybe controlled, maybe possessed by the evil one to fulfill the evil one's desires, but fundamentally what Judas did was Judas's desire. He is the one who is fully responsible for his actions. And he immediately obeyed the Lord. Jesus says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And up he went and out the door he was. Strategically, now, Jesus could finish the supper. And at this point, what they enjoyed together was what we call the Lord's Supper. Communion. This is when Jesus instituted this as a a rite that the church should participate in in order to uh, commemorate all that Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. Now, I, I, I dare say that when Judas stood up to leave, I dare say that prior to that moment, he didn't have a specific plan. I imagine that when Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly, it it first of all revealed that, that Jesus knew what was up. He wasn't outing Judas. Judas was going to out Judas. Judas was going to be the one to reveal himself to be the betrayer. But by Jesus' words, what 
you're going to do, do quickly. (coughs) Judas knew. Jesus knew. (coughs) And I imagine at that point, (coughs) um, he... um, he, he had all, all of the pieces, the, all the puzzle pieces came together and uh, they, they formed a, an outline of his plan. The religious, the religious leaders said <clears throat> they wanted um, to arrest Jesus at an opportune time. They also told Judas, Luke 22, um, that uh, they, they, did, they wanted to do this away from the crowds, away from all the people. Luke 22 also tells us that Judas knew that it was Jesus' habit in the evening after supper to go to the Mount of Olives. And we find there the language, as was his custom. John chapter 18, we find out that Judas knew exactly where on the Mount of Olives Jesus would be, specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane. So as Judas stood up and Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly, I think the plan immediately fell into place for Judas. And all of these pieces came together, and now he had a plan. He walked out to do that plan. Thank you. Point number four. Before I get to point number four, let me, let, let me ask you this. Have you ever considered, have you ever let your mind wander and, and ask the question, why did, Jesus, why did Judas do what he did? We don't know his motivations explicitly. They're not revealed to us by the Spirit and, and recorded for us in Scripture. But I wonder, I wonder if Judas did what he did in order to force Jesus' hand. In order to be the hammer that, caused, that would cause Jesus to be the political leader Judas knew, expected, thought, wanted Jesus to be. He was forcing Jesus' hand. You are the Messiah, you are to reign, you are to be the ruler, now do it! Stop playing around, healing people and all of that kind of stuff, and get about this business of kicking Rome out of Jerusalem. I wonder if Judas spun that idea out a little bit more fully. Here he was at the table with Jesus 
And he was given the seat of honor. He was the treasurer. I wouldn't put it past Judas to think that if Jesus is the king, he had a very good chance of being the secretary of the treasury in the kingdom. And this is the music he would hear. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Access to all kinds of wealth. And we know what Judas would do with that. Well, this is conjecture. We, we, we don't know, but we can say this. Pride always wants to create reality according to our likeness. Point number four. The conjecture. Verse 28, now, now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose Jesus had said this to Judas. No, nobody knew why Jesus told Judas what you do, do quickly. Verse 29, some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast. Well, apparently the guys that were responsible for setting up the Passover celebration forgot dessert. So Jesus sent Judas to the grocery store to finish out the meal. Or else, middle of verse 29, that he should give something to the poor. Yeah, it was dark outside, but maybe Jesus is sending Judas out to... uh, um, you know, the off-ramps at the freeway, and pass out money to the homeless people that are there. When there's a question, why? When we are looking for an explanation of how come? When we don't have facts in order to fill in the blank, we sometimes, we usually, make up our own. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing. They're they're trying to make sense of what doesn't make sense. Coming up with one idea after another. The fact that one of them would betray the Master, that didn't make sense. Verse 30, So after receiving the morsel, Judas went out immediately. And it was night. Oh, it was night. And it wasn't just dark outside. It was dark in his soul. But the eleven remained. And they would be so blessed, so encouraged, so strengthened in the midst of their uncertainty and their confusion. Let me spend a little bit of time on uh, some points of application. I've got four. uh, There's some some blanks for you to fill in. 
I hope this will help guide your, your thinking um, as, you, as you reflect back on this text of Scripture. Number one, nothing will thwart God's will. Nothing will thwart God's will. The schemes, the machinations, the tools of the enemy are plentiful. But there is no thing, there is no one who can undo what God has set in motion. None. Even Satan's apparent victory on the cross, come Sunday morning, was smashed to smithereens. There's no victory there. God used what Satan thought would be Jesus' demise for Jesus' greater glory. Nothing will thwart God's will. We read in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, speaking of Jesus, He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Satan has nothing. God remains sovereign. He is in control of all things. Secondly, even, even, even in control of betrayers, Secondly, we will never fool God. We might fool a lot of people for a long period of time. Judas fooled all of the other 11. He he caused them to think he was a true believer. He was a genuine disciple of Jesus for three years. He led them on and caused them to think he was the real deal. He was a real play actor is the truth of the matter. The Greek word for a a play actor is the word hypocritos, from which we get our word hypocrite. Describes Judas pretty well. Pretending to be one thing when indeed he was something quite different. A lot of people were fooled, not just the the other 11. A lot of people were fooled by uh, by, by Judas, but not Jesus. Jesus saw through the facade. He saw the real heart, the real soul of Judas. We can fool the people around us a good bit of the time. But we'll never fool the Lord. Best for us to be honest with each other. As well as with the Lord. Point number three. Jesus treated Judas with love and Grace. We don't know 
why Judas sat in the place of honor, if, if the scholar's understanding is accurate. D- did he simply take that for himself? Or did maybe Jesus say, here, sit by me? Was, was he taking that place of honor or given that place of honor? We're not exactly sure. We do know that Jesus, uh, as, a, as a, a gracious gift, dipped the morsel into uh, the bitter herb and fruit sauce and handed it to Judas. He gave Judas another opportunity to repent In Matthew chapter 26, we find that when Judas finalizes his deed and with a mob of of, uh, soldiers, religious leaders in his train, he went up to Jesus as they found him in the Garden of Gethsemane and gave him a kiss, the kiss of betrayal. And at that point, Jesus called him friend. Even to the very end, Jesus showed him love and grace. If we are called to live out his example, as we looked at the text before us last week, can we do anything less, even for those people that are our betrayers? Our confidence is in the fact that God is in control of all things, all circumstances. Even when we can't see that, he is in control. Our confidence rests there. So I can show love and kindness and grace and patience even to backstabbers in my life. Fourth, we must not denounce some sins and give pride a pass. I'm returning to where I started earlier. There are a number in the evangelical community that will point to sexual sins, particularly the sins of gay, lesbian, trans, and say those are are, are horrible, despicable, and, and, and completely unwelcome while at the same time excusing their own sin and fail to understand that at the core of their sin is pride. That which is unacceptable to the Lord. Sin is sin. We we can't wink at gossip. We can't wink at a white lie and think, oh, well, that's just Joe being Joe, Sally being Sally. No, at the heart of that is is pride. We we can't denounce some sins and, and let let, let pride or, or, or maybe other lesser sins as we might envision them have a pass. 
Charles Spurgeon said famously, be, be not proud of race, face, grace, or place. Where you live, to whom you were born. God's kindness in your life. There's no, there's no place for, for being prideful of grace as if you figured it out and then your next door neighbor hasn't figured it out yet. Well, to be pride of how I look or the color of my skin, there's, there's no place for that. There's no place for pride anywhere. All of what we have and have been given is by God's kindness to us. We must kill pride in all the places it raises its ugly head. If we don't, it will swallow up our spiritual health and it will deny us the privilege of being used of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in our worship this morning, we have talked, we have sung, we have prayed with regard to your grace. So deep, so majestic, so undeserved. You lavish it upon us in Christ. And we give thanks to your holy name for revealing it to us, allowing us to experience it and allow it to shape our life. Because of that, would you find in us a group of people that are humbled, broken, knowing that we are desperately needy and unworthy of any kindness you might show us. Would you find us a, a humble people that glory in your wonder, your power, your goodness, your grace, and use us be instruments of your grace, your hand, your feet, your mouthpiece, to the people around us that are clueless. This we pray in Jesus' name.